You're in the water loop. In California, there are 1 million people that don't have reliable access to clean and safe water. I'm here in the San Joaquin Valley, where a lot of those individuals live. They are Latino, low-income people that live in communities that are under-resourced. And often a lot of them are working in the big agricultural industry. And it's agriculture that's using so much of the water that their wells run dry or they're polluted by pesticides or fertilizers. And now the forces of climate change, drought, hot weather, flooding from extreme rain are complicating the situation even further. But there are fighters here in California, people who are champions for their community who are working relentlessly to deliver clean water. I'm gonna to talk to some of them about the solutions that they're working on and the progress that's being made. So I'm in Visalia, California, in the San Joaquin Valley. This is home to one office of the Community Water Center, an organization that's really working to help people get clean, reliable water. I'm gonna to talk to co-founder Susana De Anda. I need to understand from her how there are 1 million people in California that don't have access to clean, safe water. I wanna understand the impact and response of the agriculture industry and the ways that her organization and others are helping to tackle this problem. I've heard for so long about uh, 1 million people in California that do not have reliable access to clean water. Right? They either don't have water, their water is polluted, some combination of this. I still just cannot understand it. You know, uh, it's unacceptable. You were, we're in the United States. I don't understand how this is allowed to continue, <laughs> but could you explain the situation, like just kind of this picture, and especially when it comes to the San Joaquin Valley, um, What's, what's going on? You know, imagine a world where mothers have to worry that their children don't swallow the water they use to brush their teeth. Imagine a world where parents have to ensure that their children take bottled water to school. Imagine a world where moms have to bathe their baby in bottled water. That world is here in Tulare County. That world's here in California. It's no surprise that the heaviest load relies on the communities of color, immigrant communities. Plenty studies show that if you're low income and you look like me and you live in the Central Valley, you're gonna have higher chances of having polluted water and unaffordable water rates. The reality is that in California, yes, we have over 1 million Californianos on a daily basis exposed to un unsafe drinking water. On top of that, our hardworking families have to pay twice for water, for toxic water, and on top of that, if they know not to drink water, if their local provider informs them not to do that, they have to get alternative water supply to have safe drinking water. That becomes a huge load on our farm working communities. They're paying twice for water. That is not okay. So what, we're, what we have here, we have third world conditions where we have old and dilapidated infrastructure, piping contaminated water, landing to people's tap water, and families have to make tough trade-offs whether they drink that water or not and get bottled water to have an alternative water supply. These are stressors that we're seeing that have been happening for decades. Now you add drought to that, to an already stressed ecosystem that we have here. So the option is no running water or contaminated drinking water. I'll tell you as an advocate, that is those two options should not ever be an option for any family. Could you explain why 
sometimes there's no water. Why wells run dry? Where's that, where's that water going? It's important to recognize that as humans, we need to have safe drinking water to survive, just like we need to have air to breathe. Many of these local water systems, local water providers have, if they're lucky, they have two wells. Many of them have two wells that don't have safe drinking water. And so when you have a drought, you have these massive changes in climate, you already have a system that's already at risk. So oftentimes their own functioning well gets defunct or it's not potable drinking water anymore. And their backup well, it's a backup well for a reason, but many often the backup well is not working and it's also polluted. So we have this system where it's ongoing because it's really expensive to treat water when you have a small base. So take for example, if you live in a community of 200 people and you have to bring in treatment to treat things like arsenic and nitrates, it's very costly. Then it becomes unsustainable, unaffordable to treat water at a small scale. So what we need to do is have economies of scale. We need to think about bigger solutions, regional solutions where appropriate to bring in treatment that can provide safe drinking water for many residents, that then the cost becomes affordable, that then people can drink tap water without the fear of becoming sick. That's what we want and that's what we're working towards. I had in my head that so much of the water supply issue, the pollution issue is from agriculture. I'm glad you raised this other point that, that you have these small communities and that infrastructure is expensive, treating water is expensive, and just the, the financial puzzle doesn't come together for a utility in that way. So that's a big part of the issue too, right? Um, and so maybe some kind of like consolidation or regionalization of utilities kind of pulling together is a way to go. How often when a well goes dry, is that because ag is using so much of the water? Are they responsible for consuming a big piece of the groundwater? It's important to also recognize that we have two types of water. We have surface water and we have groundwater. In order for us to have access to surface water, we have to have water rights. Those are very expensive rights. Many of the systems that we work with directly don't have water rights, which means we're 100% reliant on groundwater. Which means then why are we allowing this pollution to come into, this, into our groundwater, into our potable drinking water? Well, it should be potable drinking water. So we live in California. Welcome to Tulare County. Tulare County is known for the, we're the number one milk producing county in the state. We have more cows than humans just here in Tulare County. We're talking about big scale dairies. And when you have such big entities, and also we have, we produce a lot of food in the valley. So we have a lot of agricultural industry and practices that can contribute to groundwater pollution. So take for example, nitrate pollution comes from three major sources. Fertilizer use, we use that here to grow food. Animal manure, well, we have a lot of cows in Tulare County. And then the third source that contributes to nitrate contamination is leaky septic tanks. Now it's important to recognize that, as you mentioned, sustainable solutions requires us thinking about consolidation where appropriate, making sure they have resources available for these types of options, making sure that we look at cross scale, that we also include domestic wells as part of that solution as well. The agriculture industry at large that is a bit, in a big way responsible for a lot of the conditions, what's, what's their reaction? I'm always like, why are they not doing more to help with the water in the communities where the people are that make their industry possible. They're the workers on in uh, on these farms, right? They wouldn't exist without these people. What's the reaction 
or actions or lack of by agriculture? Look, I recognize as a water advocate that the industry it has to be part of the solution for us to ultimately have safe drinking water. That means that we need to stop allowing clean water flowing towards money and power. That means that we have to have better regulatory programs in place that limit further contamination. That also means that if you're polluting groundwater, then you should be penalized for that. And some of that funding should be going towards the communities that you contaminate their drinking water from. And it's important to recognize that we need to also hold the polluter accountable, but how we do that is by making sure that the regional water boards do a better job of enforcement. Look, bottom line, we realize that in California, it's clear where all the systems are out of compliance. It's no surprise that they hug the agricultural community. And it's no surprise that farm worker communities are highly exposed and disenfranchised and affected disproportionately. And the story is the same everywhere you see this. So yes, the industry has a big role, but for them to be part of the solution means that the regulators have to do a better job of regulating their programs to limit and stop further contamination of our groundwater sources. So it's great that there's been some legislation recognizing the need or the right to water, the need for water. Uh, it's great that there's some funding that's come along. Could you talk a little bit more about what impact that has had? Has it helped to get new wells drilled? What? How, how have those things led to a little bit more access to clean water? Absolutely. You know, SB 200, as part of the law, it required an advisory board to help the state water board guide the funding. And it's made up of impacted residents. That in itself is really powerful to make sure that impacted residents are part of the solutions to ensure that we're directing funding in the right way. So you're right. And that's, we call it safer, the safer funding. And what we're starting to see is that communities are now working on their interim solutions. We're monitoring wells. We're checking to see what kind of water quality they have. We're working alongside with impacted residents, working with engineers to make sure that we're developing the right alternative uh, solutions for our communities. And every step of the way, residents impacted by this reality are part of the, the conversations, are part of making sure they're talking directly with the engineers, are part of providing feedback to the engineering report so that ultimately they truly have the solution they want to see on the ground. And that's important because we don't want entities to come into our communities to tell us what we need to do. It's important that we have the approach of working alongside impacted residents to drive change. And that takes time, but that's real change. And that's how you really drive towards the real long-term solutions that we want to see on the ground. The Community Water Center, I know that's one thing you all emphasize is getting these voices heard, but in positions of more influence, right? Um, getting them on to some of the local government entities and that and that kind of thing. Could you talk about that a little bit more, kind of building coalitions and so forth? In our communities, it's so important to understand our roles and responsibilities, whether you're a resident, you're paying a bill, or you're in a domestic well, or more importantly, you want to work alongside your local water board. And even more importantly, you want to become part of that local water board that's making decisions that affects you on a daily basis. And for that, it's important to recognize in our communities, better communication and trust is really key to, dr to drive change. And so we've created a coalition called Agua, Asociación de Gente Unida por el Agua, that's composed of many residents that don't have safe drinking water, that pay unaffordable water rates. We've met for the last 16, 17 years every single month. Oh, wow on our regional campaigns to target the regional water boards and the legislature to truly hear us and provide real solutions and real resources designed for our needs. And that's the coalition in there. They've been paving the way. They passed many laws, especially the human right to water. They were in instrumental in passing that. In addition to this coalition, we also have 
And again, we have, we created an infrastructure that there was a huge gap. So often what we see is local water board members don't really know what they're doing. Mm. And it's not for them not wanting to know, it's for, it's really the lack of resources that they're, they know exist. Tapping into other networks, asking questions, what kind of funding is available? How do I access that resource? And so for that, we created the Community Water Leaders Network. And that network is really established to ensure that people that are part of a decision-making body have the right resources available to them to make informed decisions and a space for them to feel safe to say, how do I create an agenda? How do I make sure that I have translation policies at the local water board? How do I review a budget? These are real questions that I would imagine in a, in a board meeting, you, more often than not, people don't want to ask these questions because they feel intimidated or whatever. And so the network that we created is solely for that, to create a safe space for decision makers to ask questions that they want answers to. And then more importantly, we as a center provide all the resources that we know of and share that information. We talk about policies. We talk about funding opportunities. We talk about technical assistance opportunities, other organizations working on water that they need to know and have access to so that they become an informed decision maker. Too often, people in the San Joaquin Valley find themselves without the power needed to secure clean water. That's why there's a concerted effort to get people into positions of influence, even at the hyper-local government level. I'm gonna to talk to Linda Gutierrez. She's a resident who is also a representative on the Yetam Seville Community Services District. She's able to use that position to advocate for clean water. She's also part of a network of community leaders who are all working for water, can learn from each other, and help share solutions. Linda, so could you tell me uh, about this facility here, this tank, what is this? This is the new Yetam Seville water system. It's a 210,000 gallon tank that we um, put in. It's been here now just a little over a year, year and a half. Uh, it was put in because probably the last 10, 15 years, Seville has always been out of water. Do residents, um, are they paying a water bill for this? They are, so they're paying for this system. How do the residents feel about having added this new tank? When we had water and everything was working without giving, they were so excited for the first time. They could turn on the water, it was clean, they could drink it, they could cook with it, they could take a shower, they weren't worried about putting their kids in the tub. We have a lot of kids, we have a lot of senior citizens because Seville is um, an old community. I mean, the school was established in 1875. Some people might say if there's a water problem somewhere, well, the people should just go ahead and move somewhere else. That's not how it works, right? Yeah. This is a home. This is this your is home. Your this is your history, your community. You have roots here. You just don't walk away from that unless, you know, God willing, you absolutely have to, you know. What did it take to get this built? <laughs> it took probably 10 or 15 years of People going to Sacramento, people, you know, talking to their county, their county supervisors, their councilmen, their senators, everybody saying, look, we've got a problem. Well, the World Health Organization decided to pay Seville a visit. And that, let me tell you, made the pot jump. Yeah. And once they did and published their article of how our water system was worse than some third world countries they saw, man things started jumping. So um, Seville, can you just tell me about 
this town, this place. We're sitting here at the elementary school that, as we were talking about, was established in 1875. It's one of the oldest, still operable elementary schools in the area. So there's a lot of history here as far as the families that are here. There have been generations that have run through this school. Uh, it's a farming community. Uh, most people here are farm labor workers. Uh, and it's, you know, their grandfather was, their father was, they are. Um, some of the kids obviously have moved on and, and live in town and, you know, that type of thing. But the families are still here. And what's been the water story of Seville? Uh, I know it's a long, twisting tale, yeah. but if you know, you kind of had to summarize it. What's what's the story, the situation? Originally, we had a great water system, and obviously, like anything else, it aged, and we didn't have the infrastructure to maintain it. So as time went on, the pipes deteriorated, the the well system itself deteriorated. Um, People didn't know from one minute to the other if they were going to have water or what the quality of the water was. And so that was part of that, though, is sometimes people would be without water or without clean water. Without clean water. You know, you don't have water to cook with. You don't have water to bathe your kids with. The seniors, you know, you, you have to take choice. Do you either use water to cook your meals or do you give the kids a bath? Or do the seniors get to take a bath, you know? And then you start running into diseases and infantago and things like that because hygiene isn't kept up. You know, it's it's kind of a vicious little circle that one one goes on without the other. And have you all started to make progress, would you say, over the past few years? Um, you have some new a new tank, you're you're looking at having a new well coming soon. So it seems like you've been able to get some attention, some resources, some some traction. Yeah, it's been in probably the last I'd say six to eight years that we actually started getting attention. Uh, for a long time, we didn't. We didn't. It was it was a constant fight. I am one of the original members of the Adam Seville Community Service District. I've been on the board. This is my fifth year. Just got funding for to put in what we call an emergency well because of again a water shortage. Um, getting all the hoops jumped through to get that funding, working with Tulare County, working with self-help enterprises, working with a water district. And, you know, it's been amazing to find the organizations out there that could help us. You know, California Water Service, everybody out there who people didn't know existed. And little by little, we have been finding these people who helped us. And it's, it's made a world of difference. So it sounds like... <laughs> Before you and with you, it's about fighting and using your voice and being persistent. But you have, right? Would you say that's, it's, that's... Persistence is the biggest thing because there's so much red tape to everything. There's red tape to clean water. If you, if you don't have water, move. You know, if you don't like this, move. Well, that's not the way it works. There's, there's history. There's, there's, and we just talked about this earlier, that these people don't just pack up and move. That's what it's taken to get... Uh, a bigger tank yep. to get a new well on the way is using your voice and then even creating a, a local government entity, This the services district. I mean, you had to create that to get that official position of power to go leverage it, right? To go get these things. Yeah, I guess in a way to show people we're serious. Yeah. We're not just somebody who lives there who has nothing better to do than complain. 
you know, okay, now we're, you know, we're real. We have, we have a name. We are a service district and we have people behind us that are here to help us get what these people deserve. You know, having water isn't a privilege. It's a right. It's, it, how can you tell people, well, no, you deserve water, but well, we'll think about you. That's, that doesn't work that way. You know, your family's part of this community for generations, right? 1938. Agriculture is, is woven into the fabric of this community. It is the fabric of the community, right. but that, uh, agriculture is also a big part of what's using the water, polluting the water. How does that sit with you? <laughs> it's a vicious circle. It's like, we have to have the orchards, we have to have the trees, we have to have everything. They provide food. If we don't have food, we don't eat. You can, you can have all the water you want then, but nobody lives on water alone. You know, and the people who have these ranches and have these farms, they're in business. They're in business to make money because they have families to support just like everybody else does. So what we have to find somehow, some way is a balance between those two. You're part of the Community Leaders Network, I believe. Right. Uh, what is that and how is that group helping to advance solutions for water in this area? Fortunately, they have a much louder voice than I do by myself. And that's what it takes. I mean, no man is an island. And Yedem Seville Consumer District can do all at once, but without people like that leadership group, who they themselves have the same situations in other communities, in Tuleyville, in Allensburg, in Alpaw, in Corcoran. And that, in a sense, gives us even more leverage that, you know, if something works here in Seville, maybe it'll work in Corcoran, maybe it'll work in Tuleyville. Uh, maybe somebody comes up with an idea in Tuleyville, but uh, Allensworth has already tried it and it was a horrendous disaster. Okay, we know not to do it again, but that idea might spark another idea. So the idea of having this group to share ideas with on a much larger base than just us is is just amazing. Everybody needs that extra little bit of, because there's times you feel like, that's it, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. Nobody's listening, I'm beating my head against the wall. And then there's somebody from Tulaville that's gonna say, you know what, Linda, been there, done that. Put your big girl pants on and keep moving. Well, you wouldn't keep after this if you didn't have uh, hope, right? right? Exactly. And feel that progress is possible. Right. So how, how are you feeling about the future of water in Seville? Right now, we are looking at putting in a third well. Uh, we did get emergency funding, a little over a million dollars. Right now, we're at the stage of we've got all the formal paperwork done. Now we're, you know, start looking for a well driller and get this process going. But in the meantime, we also have what is called phase two of a project that we've been working on for several years, which will connect the water system, the wells here in Seville, to the well system in Yedem, which is about a mile, mile and a half away. And the thought is not only getting water to everyone in between, but also to be a backup that if for some season, some reason a catastrophic thing happened and our whole system went down, we could pump water from Yedem into Seville to keep Seville going and vice versa. Sure. That phase two is still a process. And in that phase two is another well. So now we're looking at having a third well here in Seville or in the local area and another well in Yedem. So now we've got the two communities, hopefully at some point, 
having six wells, you know, of various depths. Uh, one of the wells in Yadam is contaminated to a point. It has a high nitrate level, but their other well has very good water, so they blend it, and thereby it can be used. So that is the thought of at some point thinking we don't have to worry about this as much anymore is like... You won't be down to your last straw. Literally, literally, yeah. yeah. The school has its own well that they use for irrigation, plus they are on the water system for the water fountains and things like that. Well, when we ran out of water, because now again we're getting back to sucking up dirt and debris and whatever, they had to close all the water fountains. So the kids had to bring bottled waters to school. Or they, we had some bottled water here on campus for the kids to use. And so, you know, no more are the days of let's have a fun day at school and they bring in water slides and things like that. Nope, no water slides, no watering, no nothing. You know, everything was, uh, we have on our water bills, there is a do not water notice on there. You know, you have to boil all your water. Uh, no outside irrigating, no washing your cars, no fun houses, no nothing. And when you've got a summer like that for little kids, they're like, you know, what, what do they do? You know, they ride their bikes up and down the street and that's about it. And, you know, and then they get dirty and then they have to come in and take a bath with water that we don't have. This is the Friant Kern Canal, a 152-mile-long canal that carries water through the San Joaquin Valley. This canal is responsible for providing water to over a 1 million acres of cropland and 250,000 people in this area. Interestingly, a lot of the groundwater pumping that's happened in the San Joaquin Valley has lowered the land, its land subsidence, and it's impacted the ability of this canal to provide water to a lot of those, those crop areas. But huge, critical piece of water infrastructure here in the San Joaquin Valley. So this is a well uh, on a farm agriculture operation here in the San Joaquin Valley. They are pumping groundwater up and then into this so they can do irrigation uh, and a lot of times these ag wells are deeper than the residential wells and so they're really reaching into that groundwater that's what can leave some residential wells dry obviously ag is important want to keep saying that but just wanted to show you what one of these wells looks like up close and how they're getting that water to irrigate the fields Here, just in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley, out in the vast orchards, you see an example of the type of irrigation canals that just crisscross all of these fields, uh, moving this water, getting it onto the crops, and uh, using a lot of the water in the area, making it kind of tough on the residents and tough for them to access groundwater and so forth. But you see these canals everywhere out here. I'm standing here where there's just rows and rows and rows of pistachio trees and this is just one little orchard uh, here in the San Joaquin Valley. Really, really incredible to think about the impact. Just walked out of our hotel this morning in Visalia uh, and saw these boxes of, of fresh produce, it's citrus, 
spent the whole day yesterday seeing all these or citrus orchards and talking about how they're part of draining the groundwater, polluting the groundwater. Obviously, we want our citrus, we need our food, it's good stuff, but it's just this paradoxical situation where we get this food, we need this food, it's important, but it's really a big part of the problem here in the San Joaquin Valley as to why people have dry wells and dirty water. Technical assistance is a really key thing for residents in the San Joaquin Valley and those little water systems to have when they're facing a challenge. Self-Help Enterprises is one of the organizations that does that. I'm gonna to talk to Jesse Snyder about the ways this organization helps residents, for example, when their well goes dry to get them an emergency tank, or the ways they help those little water districts to access resources, upgrade their infrastructure, and have their voice heard as part of larger regional planning. Been able to go around Visalia, the San Joaquin Valley, Seville, talk with uh, Susana de Anda about the overall situation, uh, talk with Linda Gutierrez about Seville and, and really drilling down, seeing a lot of the, the landscape, the crops, the emergency tanks, all this. Your organization is involved in a couple important areas of assistance, and I'd like to talk about those. Could you talk about first um, helping homeowners if they've got an emergency situation? What, what often happens, and then how do you all help them? Beginning back in 2014, when the, the last big drought really started to be felt, uh, private domestic wells started to go dry. Um, and we started to receive phone calls and people would be desperate and panicking and in tears and we had nothing to offer. Um, there was simply no resource really for private property wells. Um, it's a different story for public wells and i'll can talk more about that in a minute but for private homeowners there really wasn't anything they're really on their own and um so uh paul boyer who was our former director of community development recently retired after a 50-year career almost um he kind of tinkered and and looked at things that were going on with, where people were out problem solving and he came up with a design for a, a tank um, we ended up uh, settling on a 2,500 gallon tank with a pump and uh, some PVC pipeline hooked up to the cold water lines of, of the house. And the idea, of course, being that the tank could be filled on a regular schedule by a water hauling uh, truck and the family could remain in their home while they figured out a permanent solution. Because really the alternative is leaving, right? Which if you're a renter, maybe isn't the worst thing in the world, but very challenging. And if you're a homeowner, it means losing all your wealth. Right. So um, it was really important to us to figure out how to help folks stay in their homes. And so gradually we began to partner with the county of Tulare, uh, emergency services um, office, and then also the, the governor's office of emergency services um, to really formalize that program. And so, um, you know, we were we had, I don't know, a several thousand tanks out there, a couple thousand tanks out there between 2014 and 2017. Um, a lot of them, you may remember hearing about the East Porterville situation, which was entirely unincorporated, entirely served by private domestic wells and just whoosh, failures left and right, right? So we had several hundred tanks out there. I think there might've been three or 400 just in that neighborhood um, until we got the public infrastructure. We were. Um, part of working on that project to extend the infrastructure out from the city to serve 
East Porterville as well. And that's when those tanks could finally come out. So sometimes that's the permanent solution is, is getting to be you know connected to be part of a public water system. Um, other times it's a replacement well, you know, just drilling another well. A and going well, deeper. Going deeper. Yeah. Um, we do have a funding program that supports families with uh, with funding for that grant combination grant and loan, um, very low interest loans, so they they're very affordable. Um, and we have tons of families who are qualified and approved for funding. Um, and the main uh, challenge is working through the backlog of just the physical drilling. We drove around, you know, the Seville area between Visalia and Seville and around there and you know, saw a good number of these kind of emergency tanks along along the streets. So uh, the other area you help is with some of these small little water districts, right. all volunteer board members, uh, you know, having to, to deal with not a lot of resources, not really staff and figure out how to deliver water uh, and, and keep everything operating. Could you talk about what those little systems look like, if you will, uh, especially the Yadam Seville and how you help them? Yeah, absolutely, I'd be happy to. That's that's my passion, this is my program. Um, so the here at Self Help, our community development team focuses on uh, just what you've just described, small um, water systems, also small wastewater systems that serve rural communities, um, disadvantaged communities, low-income folks, um, and who are, you know, so small that they they don't often have much in the way of capacity. They don't have um, room in their budgets to pay an engineer to be on call all the time or an attorney to be on call all the time advising them. And they, you know, they may have a, a part-time operator who comes through and checks on their water system a couple times a week, you know, but that's, that's it. It's like the bare minimum to meet the standards. And yet, you know, as a public water system, they're regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act and Title 22 here in California, like everybody else, you know, they have to, they are, they're obligated to provide clean drinking water to their customers on a consistent basis. And when you, when you are a group of volunteers elected to a volunteer board, like I, with minimal support, like I just described, you know, you could, you can imagine the challenge that folks sign up for when they take that on. And it's it's heroic. I mean, what what's more important to keeping a community alive than its water source um, and its water system? So how do you, how do you help them? Like, and even using Yadam and Seville as an example, how do you help sure. these, these folks? So we fill whatever gaps we can fill. Um, we, we work, we work with folks in rural communities. We don't work for them. So we don't come in and do the billing, for example. We don't provide operator services. What we do is provide support, sometimes just plain old moral support, um, but support in terms of expertise and connections. And, you know, we have resources like here's what a policy that you could look like. You could start with this, you know, those, those kinds of things. And then, you know, our team of community development specialists knows a lot about water systems, how they work. They know about the regs. They know about, you know, what kind of sampling you're supposed to do. So they know the right questions to ask to make sure that water systems are, are taking care of business, basically. Um, and then at the same time, we, we really put a lot of our time and energy into developing projects, infrastructure projects. Um, so, you know, in the case of our small water systems like Seville and uh, Yedem next door, um, both of them have a system. Um, Seville in particular, you 
probably heard all about it, but their system had fallen into a pretty extreme state of disrepair um, until the county of Tulare agreed to act as receiver and they took the system under their wing. And we were involved all that time. And during the time that this that the county had this the, the water system under its wing as a receiver, we were working with the the community to form a board form a community services district, an actual legal special district that would cover both Yedem and Seville, um, both of the communities together. So there's a little bit of collaboration that came from that um, to, to train them and get them up to speed, get them the resources they need in terms of funding to resume ownership of their own water system, which is a big deal, right? I mean, rural, autonomy is a really important value, right? Towns like to be self-sufficient and it doesn't feel very good when an outsider basically takes your water system away um, and runs it for you. And so, you know, Seville and Yedem, whose names I always try to combine into one word, um, are a great success story because they have a really strong board. Um, they have great relationships with other nearby systems like Sultana Community Services District. Um, and then with, you know, funding from the state water resources control board that we helped them to obtain, they've been able to build that new storage tank that you were able to see, and they were able to replace the entire distribution system, which was huge because their distribution system was really the main source of their problems because it was just broken and exposed to the air and all sorts of contaminants could get into it. And I believe they're also now scheduled to get a new well. Correct. And and also connect Yadam and Seville yeah. system yeah. and gain the benefits. Exactly. Is it these systems are so small, right? They're so small, but there, so there's value in kind of you know linking up these different areas yes. and trying to make them a little bit bigger. It gives them more resilience. Economies of scale, right? I mean that's a concept that I think everybody gets. The 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 more of something you can buy at one time, the more efficient you can be with that resource. And, and that applies to human resources like operators and um, office professionals. You know, if two small systems or three or four small systems can all kind of contribute to keeping, keeping one professional paid full time, you know, that's a much better situation than just you know, grabbing two hours of this person's time here and four hours of this contractor's time here and always being scrambling for resources. So when they can come together and pool their resources, it really can make a big difference. One of the other challenges for these super small systems, these volunteers, is being able to apply for state money or figuring out those processes, right? You have, you know, the LA water utility or the San Francisco water utility. They have people on staff that just do that stuff. Um, how, could you talk about that challenge for the small systems here in the San Joaquin Valley and how you help them with that? Yeah, absolutely, uh, great point. That's one of the gaps that we try to fill. Um, as you mentioned, you know, a larger water system, it doesn't even have to be an LA sized water system. I mean, it can be a city of, Tulare, for example, or city of Visalia, you know, they have capital improvement plans where they've mapped out their infrastructure improvements for the next couple of decades and they have basic engineering performed already and they have cost estimates. They know what their future infrastructure improvements are going to look like. Small communities don't have that because they are struggling to get through the here and now. They're struggling to make sure that the that well that was drilled back in 1968 is still pumping water tomorrow. 
that's you know like that's kind of all you can really handle right. um, at, at as a volunteer board. It's the day to day, and so they don't get to do that advanced planning. And so that's where we try to help. Is let's think about the future. Let's also think about your regulatory obligations, and let's figure out what improvements you need to make in order to meet regs. You know, comply with all the state and federal rules, and make sure that your community is still here and has water 40 years from now. Like, what are the decisions that this board today can make with that kind of long-term planning in mind? And you know, a lot of it comes down to writing funding applications. So we write a ton of funding applications um, in partnership with communities. They are the grantees, they receive the funds, um, but we work with them to develop all of the application materials. The state uh, of California has a wonderful technical assistance program through which we are funded. So we are able to work at no for no no cost to the communities. The state pays for our time, and they also pay for us to hire consultants uh, like engineers or accountants or attorneys, anybody who can come in and provide a professional service to advance an infrastructure project. This is to Larry Lake. It has reemerged after decades of not being here. That has happened because of all the rainfall in California, the snowmelt that has started in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and all of that water has made its way here to the heart of the San Joaquin Valley. Even with all the water that's being used and all the structures out there that control water, there's so much that they couldn't keep it out of this area. Tulare Lake used to be the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. And then in the 1800s, as this area was settled, dams were built, water was diverted, this basically dried up. And it has reemerged because of the historic waterfall that's come into the state. It's here threatening nearby communities. We're by the town of Corcoran. I understand there's some houses even that have already been impacted and it's projected this is going to continue to grow as all of that snowpack up in the Sierra Nevadas melts. Going to be very interesting to see what happens here, but it is a vast area that has been covered in San Joaquin's Valley. I've heard for a long time about the situation in California where over 1 million people do not have reliable access to clean water, many of them here in the San Joaquin Valley in Latino low-income communities where many of the people work on farms. And it's because of that agriculture industry that often the water runs out or is polluted. I recognize that agriculture is critical to our lives, to our economy, to the jobs of the people here. And to me, my takeaway thought is the need for balance. People need water, farms need water, the environment needs water. I'm here at Tulare Lake, which has reemerged after decades of being gone and it's from an abundance of water, the opposite of what they usually are faced with, but it underscores the need for collaboration and how everybody is impacted by the water situation, whether it's too little or too much, and that by coming together, there can be that balance for a sustainable water future.